Hello and welcome to this special edition of Inside Briefing, marking 25 years since the landmark Belfast Good Friday Agreement. I'm Jill Rutter, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government. The politicians behind the deal are well known, from John Hume and David Trimble of the then two main parties in Northern Ireland, to Gerry Adams and Martin McGuinness of Sinn Féin, to Tony Blair, UK Prime Minister, and the Irish Taoiseach, Bertie Ahern. But behind the scenes, much of the heavy lifting of history was being given a helping hand by officials from the Northern Ireland office in the UK government to the Irish government and also to the government of the US. So today we're delighted to bring together three people who played a big roles in preparing and implementing the deals that the politicians could ultimately sign to put an end to the troubles and restore devolved government to Northern Ireland. I'm going to let my guests introduce themselves First, Quentin Thomas. Hi. I joined the Northern Ireland office in the autumn of 1988 uh, for two years, but ended up staying for about 10 and left almost immediately after the Good Friday Agreement was achieved. And for most of that time, I was the so-called political director in the Northern Ireland office involved in the search for political development, the establishment of institutions and for the achievement of peace and for relations as respects Northern Ireland with our colleagues in Dublin. And speaking of colleagues in Dublin, Tim O'Connor. Hello, everybody. Um, So Tim O'Connor and I joined the Irish Civil Service in 1974 and the Department of Foreign Affairs as as a junior diplomat in 1979. And I was assigned then for the first time to the Northern Ireland desk in the department in 1986 and I suppose, like 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 Quentin and Mary and everybody else in this call, once you get the bug, that's it. Uh, so I suppose I'm I'm actually still involved almost forty years later in in some form or other. Um, I you know in my I was posted abroad a few times. Obviously, work, working I worked in the Irish Embassy in Germany in Washington, and I was also Consul General in New York for a couple of years, and ended up being Secretary General to the President Mary McAleese. But I suppose the, the the role here today is I was part of the um, the build up towards the the Good Friday Agreement from about October ninety seven onwards. I um, I had been involved at different times from eighty six onwards, but when the IRA ceasefire broke down in February ninety six, I was moved to other uh, duties and then returned in October ninety seven, and then was all the way involved for the next eight years, uh, Good Friday itself and the immediate after aftermath as well. So great to be back talking to Quentin and Mary again. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. My name is Mary Madden, and I've worked all of my career within public service. Uh, I joined the Northern Ireland office in 1992, coming in from the um, uh, professional grades, the solicitors. I worked in the Crown Solicitor's Office, uh, involved very much in the uh, legal actions involving uh, police and army and, and their role within Northern Ireland because I joined in 1979 and we were a good, at that stage, 10 years into very serious disorder uh, and uh, violence and terrorism. So from 1992, I worked in the Northern Ireland office a number of posts and was one of the, what we term, behind the scenes officials working with uh, colleagues, trying to navigate our way through not only to get to the Belfast Good Friday Agreement in 1998, but to try and implement uh, a number of the things that we had as two governments agreed to do as a consequence of that agreement being signed. Uh, And I was in the Northern Ireland office 
for 21 years overall. Mary, you were sort of saying, you know, that, you know, background in Northern Ireland, uh, the Troubles, quite a lot of our listeners will barely remember exactly what the Troubles were. What was it like living in Northern Ireland day to day during that period? Well, it was very difficult. It came sort of out of the blue. I mean, if you, if I know there's a number of, of, of our listeners who have never experienced that type of public disorder and violence on the streets. I, I certainly didn't in my early years. I was 18 whenever um, the what they euphemistically called the Troubles broke out, and that was a, a very difficult thing, starting over at Queen's and trying to navigate my way from one side of the Belfast City to the other, trying to avoid uh, rioting that spontaneously broke out, uh, working in the city centre as a newly recruited lawyer with bombs going off. I can remember working in the law courts in the Crown Solicitor's Office. I don't know how many times we were evacuated. Uh, I was in Belfast during Bloody Friday, horrendous uh, bombs that were hitting not only our, our city centres, but our provincial towns. Um, it wasn't all mayhem, but it was certainly a very difficult um, environment to work in. And you certainly had roadmaps in your head, areas that you wouldn't walk into or you would feel uh, extremely vulnerable because of the propensity of any sort of violence to break out at any given time. So it was quite a very difficult, volatile period to live in and grow up in, uh, in, in Belfast during all those years. There was a lot of going on behind the scenes politically to try and address it. But we had political instability and we had manifestly uh, violence and indiscriminate violence. You could just be one of those people. I can, Sitting in my office, I can remember sitting in the back of the city hall when the bloody Friday bombs went off and the, devast- the glass sitting at my desk and glass showering all around me and hitting the desk where I was working. That's the sort of environment it was. And that's what the governments realised they had to intervene to try and stop and that was the 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 actually the principal vision was to try and get that violence stopped and stop and jill if i could just add from a dublin perspective there that maybe um totally echo everything mary is saying and we're i think around the same age so i was you know making my way as a young person in in in, in dublin uh, through this period and obviously while most of the, the violence was in Northern Ireland. It spilled over pretty regularly into the South as well, uh, where I was living. And I remember in May 1974, indiscriminate bombs went off in Dublin City and in Monaghan and 33 people were killed on a Friday afternoon, uh, you know. And so, again, this, while not in the same intensity. And there's one statistic for your for your um, British listeners that might be interesting. If you did, a, you know, it's, it's estimated about 3,700 people were killed in the roughly 30 years of the Troubles. If you did a per capita conversion of that to, to Britain, to the, you know, in population terms, that's the equivalent of 130,000 people in Britain uh, in the space of 30 years killed in political and violence. It impacted in all aspects of life. Like, you know, going into sort of shop in the city centre, we had gates that ringed the city centre to try and keep the car bombs out. So you had to go through at what they call checkpoints and there were civilian searchers and you had to open up your handbag. And I can remember going over to London, Jill, and going into a store and opening up my hand, looking at the skirt and opening up my handbag automatically for him to look in. And, and I realised, oh, this is not normal. You know, those are the sorts of things that, uh, that were ingrained in us here, which was a dreadful time to, in one's many ways to grow up. 
That's re- that's really interesting. So, Quentin, you joined the Northern Ireland office, I think, from the Home Office in autumn. 1988, at the sort of late 1980s, you know, start of the new decade, the 1990s, what exactly was the sort of state of play on Northern Ireland in the British government? Was anyone thinking this was a soluble problem? Was it a very high priority? It's obviously absorbing a lot of resource and the mainland wasn't completely immune from terrorist attacks either. Certainly not. I mean, perhaps just a word on the overall approach of direct rule, obviously been brought because the local institutions hadn't quite worked. So the general objective was to produce good government, remedy grievances and discrimination, policies on housing, education, local government, fair employment. But looking at the political process and the attempt to end terrorism more directly, I suppose the main feature of the landscape when I joined was the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1985, which was still bedding down, it had established firmly the perhaps obvious point that the Irish government needed to have a key role in any forward movement. But the agreement had, of course, been negotiated with only two players, the two governments. And it had the unfortunate effect of alienating the unionists who were not ready to talk to even to British ministers, let alone anyone else. Uh, The agreement had important institutional uh, implications. There was an establishment of a regular intergovernmental conference and a a standing secretariat bringing together British and Irish officials in Belfast in Maryfield. In some ways, that agreement, I think, represented the high point of a project of trying to marginalise Sinn Féin. I think this was said most explicitly by the Taoiseach Garrett Fitzgerald. The idea was to show that forward movement could be achieved by constitutional nationalists. I think that's, that's Quentin is absolutely right there. From an Irish government perspective, if I could just add, you know, and I think again for your your listeners, Jill, I suppose from the start of the troubles in the late 1960s, um, early 70s, initially, um, I think, Quentin, it's fair to say, and Mary, relations between Dublin and London were were chilly and difficult. And certainly um, the summer of 1969, Mary, when we were two teenagers, you know, you know, the, the, and 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 the and the troubles broke out in in Belfast. Uh, there was extraordinary chilly exchanges between uh, the Taoiseach, the Irish Prime Minister at the time, Jack Lynch, and um, and the British Prime Minister Ted Heath. Uh, and the general sense was that um, Northern Ireland was an internal affair of uh, of the United Kingdom, and um, none of the business of the of the Dublin government. But pretty quickly, I suppose we can all agree that, you know, that came to be, I suppose, uh, not, you know, that simply wasn't in the interests of, of either um, government. And by 1972, I would say 73 or so, um, they, the, you, you know, that that had changed and that you had the beginnings of what Quentin rightly describes and that the high point achieved in the Anglo-Irish Agreement. So gradually there was a, it was, there was a, it was accepted that in political terms, there was a coincidence of interest, um, you know, between, between Dublin and London. And I suppose uh, I totally echo what Quentin said about, uh, you know, in terms of Gareth Fitzgerald, the Irish Taoiseach at the time in 1985 for the signing of the Anglo-Irish Agreement, there was a real 
question mark about the the impact on the stability of the southern state of the troubles as well. So every government has to, you know, has to protect its interests and what regard and certainly fundamental interests. And so fundamental interests of the Irish state were in play here and the fundamental stability of that state was in play. Um, and, and so that that's what that was a big part of the gradual evolution. First of all, of course, you had the Sunningdale Agreement of 1973-74. They had these very there were a number of stepping stones, as you know, Jill, along the way, uh, in, uh, representing that closer uh, coming together between Dublin and, and, and there was also a number of very high profile, uh, uh, dreadful atrocities that happened. You, you forget, Lord Mountbatten had been blown up in 1979. And all of those things like that, the hunger strikes, 81, all focused the mind of politicians as to we need to work collectively to try and resolve this to find solutions. Yes. yes. I don't know whether people thought it sort of delivered substantive progress, Quentin, or... It, it, yeah. it was contentious. If if it was, as, as I said, I agree with what others have said, but mm. if, if that was the high point of the project of marginalising Sinn Féin, I think, uh, and I don't know whether Tim will mm. agree with this or not, my own view is that in parallel but separately, each government, particularly in our case mm. following Peter Brooks' arrival mm. in 1989 as the Secretary of State, there was a shift from the project of marginalising Sinn Féin to a project of co-opting them to a political process but on democratic terms if they were prepared to accept them. And... Um, both governments started to say quite expressly, in our case also through a back channel, if the terrorism was brought to an end, any political process could and should involve Sinn Féin. Now, one of the first things that happened under Peter Brooks' administration was in January 1990, he gave a speech in Bangor saying he thought, he said this to universal <laughs> scepticism, I may say, <laughs> He, he thought there was sufficient ground for, a, for a, a political process involving the main players. Uh, he also said that if, if there were a, a broader uh, agreement reached among the key parties, it could replace the Anglo-Irish agreement, which was a key signal mm. to the Unionists who were taking the view that they couldn't in, in, get involved in a political process as they would put it, under the yoke of the agreement. So after that speech, there was a, a, a concerted effort involving the Irish government and the four main parties in Northern Ireland to establish a framework and a basis for a talks process. And I think the key feature of the process that we all worked to bring about was that it should have a comprehensive agenda and an inclusive cast list. A lot of the earlier initiatives could be distinguished as lacking one or both of those things. It, so, so, Quentin, just remind us, when you talk about the four main parties, these yes. are the constitutional parties, so the, who are the parties that the you U have at the table? The UUP, headed at that time by Molyneux, the DUP under Ian Paisley, uh, Dr Aldice with the Alliance Party, and, of course, John Hume with the SDLP and, and the two governments. And this, this work uh, came to uh, its conclusion in a statement that Peter Brooke gave to the House of Commons on the 26th of March, setting out the basis for a talks process. Now, that statement, although it was in the form 
of a statement by British Minister to the House of Commons was in fact an agreed text. It had been negotiated with those four mm. parties and the Irish government, and I would say it was the first agreed text in a political process that culminated in the Good Friday Agreement. So that was the 26th of March, 1991, I think you told me. Now, so I remember as a bit of a sort of landmark, but this may be my poor memory, Quentin, that there was quite a lot of interest when Peter Brook made a speech declaring that the UK had no selfish, strategic or economic interests in Northern Ireland and that its future would be determined was in the hands of a majority of the citizens of Northern Ireland and just for them alone to decide. Um, was that a significant moment? Was that, am it, I misremembering the significance that was of that? Me- that was a key signal, um, partly made on the advice of John Hume, I think it's right to say. Those words had in fact been said by Tom King earlier, but they had quite achieved the same resonance when he said it. But the, the idea was that Sinn Féin were proceeding on the basis that the real conflict was between the British and Irish nationalists and the former should be driven into the sea by the latter, whereas the correct analysis, as John Hume emphasised, was among the people of Ireland and the British had no selfish, etc. interest. I think that that's very important. I, I just like to come in here, I think one hundred percent. I think that's a very good outline of the evolution of the, you know, the, of of policy on on both sides over the years. And I think it's an important point, also, Jill. You know, for your listeners, that the Good Friday Agreement, or Belfast Good Friday Agreement of nineteen, was a culmination of a whole. I would even say Quentin and going and Mary going back right to you know to, to Sunningdale almost I would say ninety and it was an iterative process you know build, so each new stage was building on the you know the the sort of accepted um, how far that the previous um, you know the previous effort had got to so I think that I just want to echo and and uh, very much what Quentin is saying about that pivotal time uh, in the late eighties early nineties and I want to say a few words about John Hume. Because Quentin mentioned John Hume and Seamus Mallon as well, uh, whom I should say to Clara was a very close. And I had the privilege of, the poignant privilege of giving the eulogy at Seamus Mallon's funeral three years ago. Um, so, so John Hume and John Hume and Seamus Mallon were the leadership the of, the... of the of the of the SDLP. And John Hume, I would say. Uh, 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 Wonder what the colleagues think. I suppose in many ways was the he, he was the conceptualizer. He, he he had he thought deeply about these, and he understood that in the, in the republican movement as as the sort of the collective was named for Sinn Fein and the the IRA belonging to a, a kind of a movement which we call the republican movement, supporting the idea of a, of a republic on the island of Ireland. Um, that he understood the importance of theology and doctrine uh, for the republican movement. And and therefore, therefore he he was as he as he mulled, he was a former seminarian as well, so he was mulling on on all of this. And uh, Quentin, so he began to see that if you could re reframe reframe, uh, you know what was happening in Ireland in as the way that Quentin said, and th- then actually that that you could open up a pathway that that also would resonate from the point of view of the Republican movement. And I think it's probably fair to say I would I don't know what the colleagues will think that Jerry Adams had become the president and of Sinn Fein and the leader of Sinn Fein and effectively the leader of the Republican movement in um, 1983. And pretty much you can trace from that time onwards, and we're now talking almost a decade later, that he was he was on a he was on a roadway and on a mission towards 
I call it ending the isolation of the Republican movement and actually exploring, you know, the, the political pathways. And some of that was reinforced. I think what what they saw with the, you know, what happened with the the hunger strikes and the outpouring in many ways of support uh, for the, you know, the, the the popular support because there was general revulsion for the IRA campaign overall. There was no very little support in but but the the hunger strikes in 1981 and. Uh, you know, where 10 people uh, died, Bobby Sands, probably the most prominent of those, a member of the parliament of Westminster, um, you know, there was a, they could see that there was a pathway to politics. So John Hume could see that there was a potential here in this. And I think that's why, you know, I think he was a very influential figure then in, in reframing, I suppose, the direction of doctrine here. And that's why what Grenton has just said there is, was so important and what Peter Brook was saying. And I do believe myself that, that the, those events and that, you know, in the, in the early 90s were pivotal in actually opening up this pathway. Can I just come in and say, as well as all of that, one has to forget there was a very, uh, the other community in this place of ours, the unionist community, who were watching all of, all of this, who were looking very much, as Quinton said, uh, at, at what was happening within republicanism. The, 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 these, the Sinn Féin and the IRA represented to them people who were trying to overthrow the state. They weren't interested in the politics. That took quite a long time. Uh, to 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 come to uh, to allow unionism to come into the, the the position where they were prepared to engage directly in in negotiations, allowing the the Irish state to have some sort of say because they were believing, uh, and it took some a long time for the, to to get a better understanding uh, of the implications of an Irish dimension. In, in Northern Ireland, that that unionism was what Sinn Féin and terrorism uh, through the IRA was all about, was trying to overthrow this state and to bring them closer and into line with an Irish Republic, which was abhorrent to them. So there were two communities who were uh, looking, at, you know, we have to look when we're seeing how we address it and, and find a solution. So Quentin, uh, we, you were talking about the need for a comprehensive approach. When did the idea of this sort of three-strand approach that we saw you know, incorporated in the, uh, in the text of the Belfast Good Friday well, Agreement, that, where did, where did, when did that originate, the idea that, that there that, were... that emerged in, in that period I mentioned between the Bangor speech mm. in 90 and the 26th of March statement in 91. And it reflected a number of the imperatives of the different participants. For example, the Unionists did come, as Mary uh, says, to accept there's an Irish dimension, but they didn't accept that the Irish government should be party to the part of the process which designed the governmental institutions within Northern Ireland. So that became strand one. Strand two was north-south uh, relations in short. And one of the outcomes of the 91 talks uh, when they finally got going was to decide that that bit would need an independent share. But could I just say, I agreed with what Mary and Tim said, but I wanted to draw out mm. one of the implications, which was that you did need a multilateral process because there were all these different participants, because it was not a bilateral problem between the British and the Republicans. And if you look back at the uh, ill-fated meeting mm. that Willie Whitelaw had with the IRA in 1972, it, it demonstrated 
why that model was no good, because the IRA simply presented a whole series of demands which were impossibilist. But even if they'd been uh, acceptable, there were other parties who were nowhere near the table. So it would have been quite wrong to have taken them forward in that forum. Um, I, I wanted to say that I just echoed what what Tim said about uh, John Hume's role. A number of the features of the process uh, set out in the 26th of March statement directly reflected some of Hume's ideas, like nothing should be agreed until everything is agreed, that the outcome should be acceptable to the people, i.e. validated by a referendum north and south. And so on. So he was extremely influential, but also what Mary says is crucial that there were two communities, and a lot of this, the design of this um, process was to reflect unionist concerns. And just as there was an evolution in Republican thinking, partly stimulated and encouraged by John Hume, I think I'm, I'll, I'll tease Tim by saying there was some evolution in the Irish government's position around the notion of consent, which. Um, and Articles 2 and 3, mm-hmm. this, this beca- it became clearer in the Downing Street Declaration in 1993 when the Taoiseach said that it would be wrong to impose a United Ireland against the wishes of a majority of the people. And that was fur- taken further in the framework document and, of course, reached its greatest and most explicit expression in the Good Friday Agreement itself. So was the 1993 agreement, uh, Quentin, the first time the Irish government had offered to amend the constitution well, to can i just can i just come in here if i could just because i i i, I accept quentin's tease he's quite right there was a, a very very well said and and of course he was he, he and his uh, counterpart sean o'higgin who was our, our giant effectively a quentin's uh, counterpart Indeed. and and, and, Dermot, and, and the late dermot galler whom i have to give a sadly dermot the two giants if you like at at, at official level in, in in that whole period were Sean O'Higgin, uh, very distinguished and still with us, thankfully. Um, I, and, I agree. Uh, and Dermot Gallagher, who Dermot Gallagher um, sadly died in, in uh, 2017 and who was and who was with whom I had worked particularly closely. Uh, so they were the kind of the two key figures and Quentin played a, 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 an enormous role on the other side and uh, to which I pay huge tribute here. Um, I think that you know, I think it's an important, and I think what Mary said, I just want to echo what Mary said as well. What we have here, Jill, is a is a series almost of parallel, if I can stay with that word, strands or parallel kind of universes, which are evolving, uh, you know, in the face of, and there is no question uh, that there was a, a an evolution happening on the Irish government side. And if I could just, Gary Fitzgerald, when he became Taoiseach, and I suppose the two giant political figures in the 80s were on, our, on the Irish government side were Gareth Fitzgerald, uh, the leader of the Fianna Gael party, and Charles Hawhey, the leader of the Fianna Fáil party. And they effectively swapped offices, you know, the, the office of Taoiseach between each other during the most of the, the, 19, uh, the 1980s and into early 1990s. Um, and in 1983-84, there was... Um, uh, there was um, uh, a, a an initiative by the Irish government led by Gareth Fitzgerald called the New Ireland Forum, which was which lasted for a year. It involved all of the political parties of, if you like, the nationalist persuasion on the um, on the island, um, essentially redefining Irish nationalism for that for the year in in light of the troubles, and and that was the beginning, I think, of a movement towards Quentin is quite right. The you know the 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 um, 
the the zenith of the of the evolution in terms of of the, the the south's attitude to the north was in the Good Friday Agreement and of course our Constitution of 1937 for your listeners you know Articles two and three of that effectively uh, claimed um, ownership of the territory of the entire island you know so that was a constitutional imperative the reunification of of Ireland was formally a constitutional imperative uh, on the Irish state under uh, Articles two and three of our Constitution of 1937. And so a all fact, of that was in play as well. You know. A fact made clear by the court in the Majimsi case, if I remember rightly. Correct, correct. I, I just echo what you say about the role of uh, Dermot Gallagher, with whom I worked on his two two periods in yes. that that, yes. that office, and much much longer with yes. Sean O'Higgins. Exactly. Yeah. So, Quentin, how? Difficult. Um, I'm going to come to Tim on how difficult it was to get sort of serious agreements through the nine, through the sort of early 1990s before we get into that. But what were the big sort of you were having to advise uh, British ministers? I mean, John Major had been attacked in Downing Street by the IRA mortar attack. Um, you know, says in his autobiography, uh, could have been uh, could, people could have been killed in the cabinet room there uh, if it had been slightly better directed or worse directed, I suppose. Uh, what were the sort of big considerations when you've got the back channel into Sinn Féin, but the sort of process of deciding whether when they start to get messages from you know, Sinn Féin RA that they're sort of interested in a different route, what are the, how do you go about advising ministers about whether this is for real or not and whether they should take risks in you know, more formally engaging with I, Sinn, Féin and IRA, Sinn Féin IRA? I, th- I think we were very fortunate in the period which I was involved in having ministers who had pretty cool heads and clear minds. And I think the general uh, basis of the thing was once we had established a clear policy line of approach, which involved seeking through, as I say, uh, a multilateral um, process with a, with a comprehensive agenda, open to all who were prepared not just to have a ceasefire, but to renounce violence. They were clear that that is the line we should proceed on in consultation with the parties and in close and growing partnership with the Irish government, and that when this was threatened by the latest atrocity or whatever, they would stay the course. There was always a a risk when some ghastly thing happened that ministers who were more febrile than the ones we had would be inclined to say something must be done something sometimes crazy like reintroducing internment. And I think the ministers in this period, though they might have the occasional temptation to do something of that sort, were remarkably steady and calm and stayed the course. So how important was sort of prime ministerial involvement? I remember I'm going to throw in a personal recollection here because I was John Major's private secretary in the late 1980s and when he was chief secretary and I asked him, what job would you like to do next in government? And the job he said he wanted to do was 
been Northern Ireland Secretary. Actually, was uh, given bigger jobs um, by becoming Foreign Secretary, I think, rather to his surprise, because he just, but he said then that the reason he wanted to do that and wasn't then regarded as a you know, the must-have job in the British government in the late 1980s was because he just thought it was unacceptable to have a civil war going on in part of the UK. So was he a huge player or was this basically done between you and your Secretary of State, Peter Brook, then Patrick Mayhew? Well, the Secretary of State were obviously important and on the front line, as it were, but both John Major and Tony Blair have rightly been given credit for the progress that was made. Both took it seriously and gave it a huge amount of attention. And as I've already said, mm-hmm. I think approached it with a, with, a, with a great steadiness and clarity. And they were closely involved, certainly um, in John Major's time, the uh, all sorts of the political developments, including most obviously uh, the Downing Street Declaration and subsequently the framework document, mm. which perhaps I should just mention yeah. that when the roundtable talks came to a hiatus, there was a quite general feeling that it would be helpful if the two governments were foolish enough to accept the chalice of drawing up some sort of sketch plan of what the outcome of the process might be to give reassurance to everyone that they weren't going off down a road with no end, but that there was a credible uh, formulation which might emerge from the end of the process. And that, that produced the framework documents which we produced in close uh, concert with the Irish government, except for the strand one bits, which were our work alone. But that that closely involved uh, number 10 in our system. Could I just, I, I just want to jump in and, and completely echo that. First of all, I think, uh, on, I think the role of the um, prime ministers and Taoiseachs and, you know, on the, on the Irish government side and was is is absolutely critical because in the political system ultimate leadership rests there um and that's a fascinating vignette you've just added there about john major thank you i hadn't been aware of that comment you know so that's very very interesting to a nerd like myself i'll I'll hoover that up um that already in the in the late 19 late 1980s he was thinking in those terms Uh, because i i to be honest i'm going to go for broke here and i'm uh, you know, the prime ministers were pivotal in this. The, the decisions of prime ministers along the way and now into the 90s, we, you know, on, on, on the British government side, it was John Major and then subsequently Tony Blair, um, you know, whom we'll come to, I presume we, we talk about the agreement itself. And then on the Irish government side, um, there was uh, three effectively in that. Well, in fact, Charles Hawhey was actually the shirk at the at the beginning of the 1990s, and he actually did quite a degree, even though uh, I had a challenging relationship, shall we say, with Margaret Thatcher. Uh, I'll put it at no uh, more than that. But he was actually quite instrumental behind the scenes as well in the late 80s, early 90s, in the direction of travel that uh, that Quentin has very very correctly outlined. Um, then he was succeeded as leader of Fianna Fáil by Albert Reynolds, and who then became Taoiseach. And Albert Reynolds and John Major had been chancellors of the Exchequer together, if you recall, Jill. And they actually formed a relationship there. Uh, and so when they became, both of them then became, you know, prime minister, they, you know, the, that relationship, I think, was really valuable. So I think that the work that they did together in the um, in the early 90s, leading to 1993, the Joint Declaration, uh, and then, of course, the ceasefires followed in, in uh, August 94 and October 94. Uh, and then Albert Reynolds, in the way of politics, he left office and he was replaced by John Bruton, 
who also played an important role over the next few years. And um, and then finally, could I, in this intervention, could I just give a shout out to the framework document? I know in the sort of the listeners are saying, what are they talking about, the framework document? But the framework document of February 1995, um, not having been, I can say to Quentin, was a hugely important document. And in fact, would you believe I was just rereading it over the weekend Um and I would say, Jill, it sets out, and Mary, I'm sure, will agree with me here too, it sets out very clearly, in very clear language, if you like, the state of play, including constitutionally, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the standoff constitutionally between the two communities in Northern Ireland, two fundamentally opposing political philosophies uh, and allegiances. And therefore, this was what was going to be required to, to be addressed by um, any agreement would have to find a way to um, reach an accommodation. But I just was reading the language and I think it's probably one of the best, you know, and to me, it actually constitutes, I'm thinking back on it, almost like the terms of reference for the for the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. This was almost like the terms of reference for the negotiators. Here it is. This um, This is what you now have to. Uh, if you like, come up with a solution on. So I tip the hat to the framework document. Can I just echo one of the things that Quinton was saying about the steadfastness of our Prime Ministers and Secretaries of State, you know, to, to keep uh, on track? And, and part of that was due to other people behind the scenes talking. So when you had those very atrocities, you know, like the Warrington bomb or something like that, which may have blown this off course, there were other relationships built in. I'm thinking of David Goodall and people like that who were talking to the protagonists who were saying, steady the nerve. Look, we know this is not good, but don't go off on a, a don't, don't re- react. We've got to keep it steady. So there was a lot of, not only was the politics developing, but relationships and difficult conversations were going on behind the scenes, under the radar, which helped to, to keep the, uh, the steadfastness and the steadiness of ministers focused on the, the, the prize. I just want to throw one other one other player into the mix, which is the U.S. government playing a sort of role. We know that the relationship between the Major and Clinton government got off to a rather rocky start um, because Major had been very close to George H. W. Bush and some concerns about sort of looking at visas. Uh, know that the British government was not not pleased when the U.S. government issued a visa to Jerry Adams when the U.K. wanted to use that as leverage to get the IRA committed to a ceasefire. But then we have George Mitchell appointed. Quentin, what sort of role did the U.S. government play through this period? Were they Uh, useful? Um, Yes, the the U.S. government was supportive. One of the points I remember being made to me by somebody in Congress, uh, which which was not a novel point, but, but a point well made, was that if the British government and the Irish government were in step, the Americans would want to do nothing but support. So as long as we kept in step, in a sense, the Americans became irrelevant because (laughs) they were simply going to push us from behind. Well, that was fine. The other great contribution I think the Americans made was to lend us, as it were, George Mitchell, who was a very good chairman in a rather... Mm judicial manner. He had, I think, mm. been a judge. He, he wasn't so much a fixer chairman as someone who held the ring and ensured the probity and validity, validity of, of the process and, and, 
secured everyone's confidence. And what, what was his role exactly? What was he supposed well, he, to be doing? Well, he, he, he was the chair, but he also, in effect, arbitrated on uh, procedural issues like whether or not a particular party should be suspended from the process because of paramilitary activity. It was an issue which came mm. up more than once. And he, he was able, as an independent outsider, to uh, form a judgment on that matter, which others accepted, whereas if it had been the British government or the mm. Irish government or even the two governments mm. together, would not have carried the same weight, I think. And did he have his own team advising him or was he being advised he, by he, you he, and the he, Irish government he, officials? I or think, how did that work? I think he consistently, although he had his own yeah. ideas, I think consistently when he thought something should be done, he would turn to the two governments together to produce some sort of suggestion, maybe write a paper, whatever. He didn't do much of that himself, but he was sensible enough, if I may put it <laughs> that way, to look to the two uh, quite large governmental teams from Dublin and London to do the work. If I could just add here, um, Jill, as well, I, I was, uh, as it happens, I was on a posting myself in the embassy in Washington from the summer of 90 to early 94. So I was there during that period. George Mitchell at the time was um, was actually Senate Majority Leader. So he was a very significant figure in Washington politics. Yeah, a key figure. And I was there as well directly when, when Bill Clinton was, was elected. So I, I, I actually saw one American presidential campaign up close. I was actually watching him live from Little Rock, Arkansas, as he announced his candidacy, I think in September 91. I said, well, this guy's interesting. But, but just to say, just completely echo everything that, that Quentin has just said there, you know, that I guess a bit like you and John Major when he was, uh, when you were his private secretary, Jill. Bill Clinton, it turns out, privately, actually was very, very interested. And it emerged afterwards, and we didn't know this at the time, that he had been a student in Oxford in the, in, in the late 60s and, from the, and had traveled across. So that period that Mary is describing, he was there regularly for weekends in Belfast. So personally, he, was, he had a, a feel for it. And as a politician, he just thought, this is something we should do something about. But of course, then he just, you know, he resumed his life in America, took up his, you know, became governor of Arkansas. And of course, it wasn't exactly a, a, hot, a hot button issue in Arkansas. Then he runs for president in 1992, 1992, and he, there was a pivotal session at Irish American New York where he made a pledge that he would do that. And that, I think, then was the start of that. So I think we have to, you know, the Irish America as well was a, was, a, was a key part of all of that. And then I would say, you know, in terms of the, all of the different ingredients that came together then to, to make Belfast Good Friday Agreement possible, that, that, that the involvement and support in the way that Quentin is describing of the Americans was actually really important. And of course, George Mitchell, uh, uh, I agree, exactly as Quentin is describing, a huge role. So John Major sort of admits in his autobiography that in the last couple of years of his government's sort of process is running a bit out of steam. He's not got a majority. It's quite difficult. Um, the IRA, IRA ceasefires uh, broken down, things like that. So let's move on to a new prime minister coming in in May 1997, Tony Blair appointing Mo Molum as Secretary of State, quite a different character, I think it's fair to say. Uh, Quentin from Patrick Mayhew, that very sort of patrician uh, archetype conservative. Um, so what was the state of play? What was your advice? Did they want to sort of say this is actually our top priority? Uh, we didn't put it on a mug, but we really want to get cracking straight away and sort this? Or uh, where um, were they? I, I, the, the ceasefire had, of course, broken down. And 
Soon afterwards, we had the Mitchell report on decommissioning, which produced a good formula on that, but also suggested the idea of elections to talks. This picked up an idea first, I think, canvassed by, I think it was probably Peter Robinson, <laughs> that if we are going to sit down with Sinn Féin, we find that very difficult. But of course, we do it in district councils up and down <laughs> the land because we've all been elected. In any event, there was an election. I think myself that the provisionals had probably decided that they had got as far as they would under a Conservative government, and they were waiting out the arrival of the expected Labour administration. When My memory is that when Mo Molum arrived, she, she thought we, we would need to make an approach to try and bring back the provisionals, but perhaps in a year. Um, our advice was rather rather the opposite, that we should get on with it straight away, which seemed, I think, to be the view coming from number 10. So a number of things were done. Uh, Tony Blair gave an important speech in Belfast, if I remember rightly. There were a series of meetings with Sinn Féin, um, which, I, which I led to try and make sure they were confident about the basis for talks before they would come back in. So I think there was a real attention from number 10, a real determination from um, both Tony Blair and from Mo Molan, that this was a key issue, that there was a good legacy from John Major, but it now needed to be picked up and brought to a conclusion. And with the help of uh, the process that had been initiated of, with having elections and getting people around tables in castle buildings. With decommissioning and with the Mitchell report, and Quentin will correct me if I'm not quite accurate in this, but he was saying you can't have a decommissioning before. And that was a, a sort of a hook that John Major had uh, was on in one sense, that he had said there had to be some, and Patrick Mayhew had made a speech saying there had to be some decommissioning ahead of talks to show good intent. And it was very difficult to make to change that, and Tony Blair was able to change it along the lines of what Mitchell said, but let, no, you won't get decommissioning ahead of it, so let's just go for the talks and, and tie it in at that stage. Yes, the British government got itself on a hook of prior decommissioning. Mm -hmm. Sinn Féin said it should come at the end. Yeah. Mitchell said it should happen during the talks. Like a good judge. <laughs> and can I just mention as well then, I suppose, Jill, just exactly as, as Gwentin and Mary describing in terms of, if you like, on the British government side of the equation, on the Irish government side, there were big changes happening as well. Uh, we had an election and uh, Bertie Ahern became the Taoiseach Prime Minister in, in, uh, in June, uh, just a month after uh, Tony Blair. Now, they, they, and, and we have to say, you know, this was a pivotal moment as well, because what we were now bringing together were the two people who at leadership level were actually going to drive this and eventually get agreement over the line. And now I have to admit bias here, you know, I, I, I worked very closely with Bertie Hearn and still do to this day. So I would have to say he's contribution then building on, like, like just Quentin's just described, building on, uh, the, his predecessors and, particular the work of Albert Reynolds are bringing about the ceasefire. I think that Bertie Hearn's uh, contribution then was was huge. And particularly his relationship with his fellow 40-something, um, you know, uh, Prime Minister uh, counterpart, Tony Blair. And what I heard, Bertie Hearn was telling me recently that they had... They had, they had known each other quite well from the time when they were both leaders of the opposition. 
and I hadn't realized that they had had quite a few meetings apparently during that time where they were actually already planning together ahead of time that if they you know came into office that this is what they would do so i think it's it was probably i guess the final in a sense pieces of the jigsaw being put into place that the arrival of tony blair and bertie hearn within a few weeks of each other you know uh, and then their relationship with their other young leader from across the atlantic bill clinton i think the three of those then you now have this kind of final piece in place of uh, Tony Blair, um, Bertie Hearn, and then supported by Bill Clinton. I think we were exactly as we were ready to go. So we all focus very much on that sort of Good Friday weekend, the Tony Blair famous line about the hand of history is upon us. So, you know, this is not a time for sound bites. Um, but where did that deadline, why was there a sense of a sort of that critical weekend, the deadline? What was it sort of like in the build up to it? Was that really make or break or was it just just another weekend in I mean, Belfast. I think, I think the process had been given two years, uh, but one of the features of it, as I remember, is, is that most of the participants had this notion that tough and seasoned negotiators, as they all mm. thought themselves to be, <laughs> didn't show their hand until things went down to the wire, was the phrase often used. <laughs> the, the downside of that was that we got quite close to the end point and, and it was George Mitchell who said, actually, uh, it really is going to come to an end. I'm, I'm off. I'm out of here. Um, so people had to stump up and there were very complex issues which had hardly been addressed, mm. including most of Strand One, the institutions mm. which would govern Northern Ireland were done in a frightful rush at the end. Um, so that was a drawback, but at least it did get to a conclusion. And despite what I said earlier about having a, comprehensive mm -hmm. agenda and the John Hume formula or the formula I associate mm -hmm. with John Hume that nothing should be agreed uh, until everything's agreed. Quite a lot of things weren't actually agreed, like <laughs> the new, new uh, this is what Mary will no doubt yeah. have more mm -hmm. to say about, <laughs> like the arrangements for policing and uh, for criminal justice generally and so on. So uh, there was, it, it did reach a great culmination, but quite a lot of bits were left over actually. If I could um, just jump in, just yeah. in fact, I, I'm sure, Grant, you were there that day, but George Mitchell, Jill, called, called all of the negotiators together into the plenary room one day, I think around the 20th of March, if my memory is correct. And we had been locked away at this stage in these talks back and forth for since, well, since September, October 97. So, you know, seven or eight months at this stage. And, and George called us all together and without warning, made the following little speech. He said, I've been with you now for three years. Um, it's been um, fascinating. You have uh, such interesting stories, and I'm sure there's more where that came from. But in the meantime, a son has been born to me in New York, and I would like to see him before he goes to college. So I, I am declaring that the time for our discussions has come to an end and our time for decisions has arrived. So I'm declaring a deadline for these talks of the 9th of April which was about two and a half, less than three weeks away. And there was a kind of a sharp intake of breath of uh, all the negotiations. Uh, but, but Quentin's right, but it galvanized. Uh, now, you know, setting deadlines is a kind of high risk, uh, you know, strategy, isn't it? But, but in this case, thankfully, it, it did work. And exactly. As, you know, so then there was this almighty rush. And I suppose I don't think we went home after that, you know, all the way for the remaining almost three weeks was... Uh, just, uh, yeah, culminating. So, when the, so, I'm, so I'm intrigued on both your sides, Quentin. When that deadline, I'm going to bring in Mary on the on the add-ons, but Quentin, when that deadline was set, were you advising Tony Blair and Mo Molum that 
the agreement was near or were you saying oh, this think, is a hugely high-risk moment no, and I, it could I, all go horribly wrong? No, I think there was a general sense that the pieces were about as in place as they would be, uh, that there was a, you know, the, the souffle was rising mm. or whatever the right <laughs> metaphor would be, and, and you had to catch the moment. And, of course, once uh, the principles came mm. to castle buildings, the Taoiseach and the Prime Minister, you knew things had reached a different level and things would be settled pretty quickly unless there was a breakdown, mm. which seemed actually by then pretty unlikely. Um, so, no, I think it was uh, a very welcome moment all round, although, as Tim implies, a certain amount of um, uh, uh, desperation was involved. <laughs> and, and did you expect the DUP to sign up or was it always clear that they would never accept the agreement? The the rules of the um, the, the initial roundtable talks in 1991 mm. and 92 had it by implication preceded by unanimity. It wasn't mm. actually stated, mm. but that was the implication. The rules of the process which George Mitchell chaired had a rule of sufficient consensus which meant you had to have a majority support from the representatives of each of the main communities. This had the perhaps unfortunate or possibly mm. fortunate result that as long as you got the UUP and, and the mm. loyalists on board, the DUP had a free ride, uh, which they took full advantage of. If, if Trimble uh, resisted something, it didn't happen. If he did, he could be re- accused of being a sellout. Um, so... No, I don't think it was a surprise. The, it, it, it was regrettable, but um, it, it was almost scripted into the rules. Well, they were outside of the so, process in any event. They weren't there. They, they weren't there. Therefore, they, weren't there. they let the UUP and David Trimble in particular carry the burden for, for that community, yes, which was, you know, which was unfortunate and 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 back to bite yes. because when all of the ingredients were there and. Mitchell had taken it and the parties had taken it. They were going round and round in circles. And I know there was quite a lot that wasn't. And Mitchell was right when he said at the end, <clears throat> this is agreement which sets a framework for relationships. But the hard work begins now. And he meant that in relation to dealing with the detail, selling it, getting it across the line. And because the DUP weren't in the room, it made it doubly hard for Trimble to go out and sell it. Uh, uh, and in fact, it gave uh, Sinn Féin an easier ride because because the DUP were criticising the concessions as they the or the sellout, depending on how viciously they they used the terminology. The Republicans didn't have to try and sell the fact that they had given they agreed to con- the consent principle. They'd agreed to a strand one where they were going to share power. Uh, so they were agreeing to another sort of democracy being restored. With them all, with them, and you know, no, no sign of a United Ireland down the track. It was very unfortunate because the DUP weren't there and taking some ownership that they gave a free ride to Republicans in selling the agreement and a much difficult uh, position for Trimble to sell it to his community. But thank goodness it was all on the basis that the thing would be submitted to two Correct. referendums, which in a way undercut yeah. the um, the dissidents. And the referendums actually happened. Surprisingly quickly, I think um, by with, with a surprising twenty second twenty second of May, um, decisive result. Yeah. Um, so, Mary, um, Quentin referred to the sort of unfinished business and some of the things that that sort of were added on to the constitutional strands. There are obviously things like 
Now, we talked about police reform. I'm going to come onto that in a second. But prisoner release became quite a big issue. Can you just talk us through what was what were the issues around that? That was a, a in a sense a demand that the uh, Sinn Féin and the Republicans made that they wanted prisoner releases to be part of the deal. In fact, that was their main uh, interest, um, and they were certainly in common cause with loyalists. And and it was a very difficult decision to take because these people, uh, as prisoners, had been convicted. Wasn't it? You know that they had been convicted of some of the worst atrocities. And it was going to be very difficult to um, take to have them walk as part of a deal. Um, and I think Trimble probably, and I think uh, he he acknowledged this later on, um, many years later, that he didn't really um, anticipate the, to, the 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 strength of feeling within his community against such uh, su- such an agreement that prisoners would be released within within two years. That was releasing convicted terrorists, basically. Exactly. And it was very much emphasised whenever they appeared, you know, and, and hailed and cheered. And, you know, you had the loyalists in the, in the, in the Ulster Hall coming in and, and you had uh, Sinn Féin and cheering Republican prisoners who had been released. That didn't help to get the atmospherics right for, for, the, for uh, universal consent. So it was very, very difficult it was something that Republicans said had to be done, and um, uh, the governments agreed to it, more so the British government, because most of the prisoners were on this side of the border, and that was a very difficult one and a difficult sale. And what about uh, what about the sort of long-term re- um, uh, reform of the, uh, of the police in Northern Ireland? Why was that such a big issue? Well, if you think that, you know, uh, up... Uh, that the, the RUC, as it was then, was the, the Royal Arthur Constabulary. Was this yeah. was the policing uh, force or service for this jurisdiction, and it was mainly uh, people from the the Protestant or the Unionist tradition who were uh, members of that. There was very few Catholics in the ranks. So reasons for that. But if you think of the RUC as a representative of the state of the community from which it's drawn, they were the ones who were taking a lot of the burden of the the rioting, the murders. Uh, They were being shot in their homes. Uh, People who joined the security services out of a sense of of duty to protect the state, they were being targeted when they were off duty. There were so many atrocities around that. So it was very difficult for a community who saw those as family because this is a very small jurisdiction at that stage with 1.5 or 8, you know, 5 million, one and a half million is the, was the totality of the population in Northern Ireland. So it was very much family community focused. So here was saying that these people uh, who had served as, as the community felt to defeat terrorism or to st- stand, you know, as the buffer um, who, who are now saying, now you need to change. Um, and it was it was really for the leadership of Ronnie Flanagan, who was chief constable at the time, who had such credibility within the police service that he was able to move and mould and change and and come along that path with with the and change from the RUC to the PSNI. But in order to do that, the government set up an international based uh, group to look at under the chairmanship of Chris Patton. But there were there was Americans there, 
and that was Irish officials and there was Northern Ireland officials to look and see how they would redress to make the PSNI uh, as it well as it became an attractive as an employer for both communities because unless you had policing accepted by both communities it wasn't going to work. I mean, I think that this that Mary is absolutely right. I mean, policing, and I would have, as a young official, uh, the, the 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 theology was that you know policing is a fundamental issue bound up with the with the core um, you know political conflict here, and that the only resolution of you know policing will will policing will only be resolved in the context of an overall. Um, negotiated outcome so it was as it was as profound as that uh, you know for the reasons that mary is just describing i suppose part of it this you know where all of this fits in goes back to quentin's point at the start about the comprehensive nature of the issues so just very briefly i mean the 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 shape of the agreement that emerged in the end it had uh, it had uh, the, the foundation stone, I guess, was an accommodation on the constitutional questions, you know, back to the, the framework document I was describing earlier. So there's a balanced kind of, um, there's essentially a balanced accommodation effectively on the status of Northern Ireland in in, in the context relations between uh, Ireland and Britain and, and, and Ireland North and South. So an accommodation on the constitutional question. And then th- the three strands, strand one, two and three, dealing with relations within Northern Ireland, between North and South and between Ireland and Britain. Three sets of institutions then across each of the strands. Um, and then there was a section in the agreement on, on rights safeguards and equality of opportunity because, you know, fundamental rights for all was a key part of it. And it also included a reference to... Um, uh, victims of violence, which the Women's Coalition, Monica McWilliams, were, were very strong about making sure a focus was there as well. And then there were a number of issues, what I would call the kind of the ending of conflict, you know, like we've just been describing, decommissioning, dealing with arms, security, the normalization of security post a conflict, uh, policing and justice, um, as we've just been describing, and, and prisoners. Um, and then there was the final section was was called validation, implementation, and review. That's the the section that that talked about the the referendums to the people. So that was the overall. And I suppose everything then was you know the, the totality of all of that was what was being put to the people. But of course, in different constituencies, had issues with individual pieces of it, as as we're describing here. But I guess that the big point was that the, that the totality of all of this constituted what the 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 prologue to the agreement called the opportunity for a new beginning. I just wanted to come back to one of the things Tim just mentioned on weapons decommissioning, uh, because oh, we've lost the need to decommission some weapons in advance. We went to the sort of during the talks. Um, but what was progress on weapons decommissioning like? Because it was failure to make progress on that, wasn't it, which uh, caused the first executive to be relatively short-lived. Quentin, decommissioning was was one of the most difficult uh, um, obstacles we had to get to get round. I mean, um, certainly, as as Quentin said, decommissioning was was, uh, deemed to be part of the talks. But whenever we finished and got the agreement, decommissioning was uh, put slightly on the long finger. And that's whenever David Trimble then, in order to sell it to his, said, we will not go in, no guns, no government. In other words, we can, we're happy enough with what we've signed up to in the agreement, but we're not going to trigger 
the assembly and move, move into it and, and start to sort of work the arrangements with, unless there's been a de- demonstrable decommissioning. And that and that's whenever the, the, the language no guns, no government came into play uh, directly after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. And that was a very difficult. And in many respects, I think David Trimble always felt that he had to renege on that and, and go first while Adams had refused, uh, said that the IRA weren't ready to do that at that stage. And I think he always felt that at that stage, let down by the British government, uh, by making him take the burden of that and uh, and not insist on some form of decommissioning uh, from the IRA. And loyalists, it wasn't just uh, the, the one side of the of of the the terrorist campaign, um, but he there was no insistence, and David Trimble had to to go back and sort of say, uh, and and made a, a very difficult decision for him to push through his party, given the opposition to prison releases and and the anticipated reform of policing and all of the rest to go into government, and he made the speech of the I think it was down in the centre of Belfast where he said, uh, "We've now gone first, you know, Mr. Adams. It's now up to you." I think he was right, probably, to attribute the issue to the British. Often it's seen as a as a sort of unionist obstacle, but I, I'm afraid it was probably the British government who introduced this. As a, What happened was when the ceasefire statement was made, it didn't use the word permanent, and um, ministers felt that was such a significant lack that they needed a proxy for it, and decommissioning was fastened on. And I think that was, with hindsight, a mistake on on two grounds. First, because the provisional movement was actually in transition. And and although on a static analysis, it's clear that if you've renounced violence, you don't need guns, um, in a dynamic analysis would suggest that there was indeed a process of transition and it it was not the thing to force the political leadership to demand of their paramilitary uh, colleagues right at the outset. The second reason I think it's a mistake is it gives uh, further leverage to those who have paramilitary capability in the negotiations. You keep getting held up over the lack of decommissioning, which meant everyone has to dance attendance on those who are in a position to do it. The SDLP didn't have any guns, so they they lacked that leverage. And I, I think, uh, with hindsight, that that uh, was. And I think, to be fair, I think our Irish colleagues saw at once that it was a mistake. Yeah, that's an honourable thing for Quentin to say because I think that's a an accurate description that he's giving there of of the viewpoints from Dublin and London, shall we say? Uh, I mean, I suppose it's back to theology and doctrine. Uh, the, you know, theology and doctrine. Uh, you know, this was coming to an end of a conflict. Um, we can none of us around this table would pick up a gun um to express a, a political cause but there were lots of people uh, around us who, who did and would um and therefore it was and i suppose in the end theologically um the handover of weapons is the equivalent of surrender um and so inside uh, inside a, a Again, I'm not. I'm not condoning here. I'm simply describing inside a Republican analysis. Therefore, this is a call for surrender, and there will be no surrender. 
Um, and therefore it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, basically it's a, a standoff between are you talk, is this a process to bring about the surrender of Republicans or is it in fact a negotiations process to, as Quentin says, of transition, you know, to exclusively, um, um, exclusively political democratic means? And is it acceptable that that's a kind of an incremental journey? And if one insists along the way on certain things happening at that moment, rather than being incremental, well, then that's a, but, you know, I'm sure, you know, I can understand from a, a unionist perspective, I can understand intellectually where they were coming from. Um, and, and I suppose in a sense, Jill, it comes down to a fundamental issue of trust and the lack of it that was still there at that point, you know, and, um, and so, and so unfortunately that, that in many ways, that question of trust all revolved, it all got distilled down in many ways to this issue of, of, of weapons. But interestingly, I mean, sort of, you know, despite all that, a few years later, we had, you know, First Minister, Deputy First Minister from the DUP who'd refused to sign up to the Good Friday Agreement and from Sinn Féin uh, in the form of Martin McGuinness. And indeed, in the Institute for Government, one of the pictures on our walls <laughs> is of Ian Paisley and uh, and Martin McGuinness, um, whatever. I just wanted to finish up by looking back now. We've 25 years. I mean, you know, most of us who've been in civil service careers can't point to great achievements, but all of you I think can, uh, can point to something that really has transformed lives in Northern Ireland transform the position. But looking back, uh, you know, has it panned out as you expected? Is this where you thought Northern Ireland might be projecting forward a couple of decades when you were there that weekend when the Belfast Good Friday Agreement was finally signed? Uh, Tim? Well, thank you very much. You, you asked me the easy questions, Jill. I think that's <laughs> very good, yeah. No, I, I suppose... Um, we all have our own memories of it. I mean, you know, my my sense of it was, you know, people ask me this question, must have been very exciting to be part of all of that and et cetera. And it was, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful and it was privileged to have an opportunity to play a part. But I have to say, uh, and I don't know what Quentin and Mary think about this, but in my head at the time, it a lot of this was touch and go. Uh, a lot of this was, um, I, you know, I, I don't believe that the outcome that was achieved was inevitable because... The, the the gap was so wide. I mean, for instance, in these negotiations, Jill, um, a, a leading party, the the UUP, would, would were not speaking directly to Sinn Fein. The uh, you know a leading party on the other side, so no direct discussions. So negotiations were taking place on that basis. So, and I think the other thing we had was that we had no experience of success on this scale. Okay, there was uh, sometimes along the way there was the Sunningdale, but that you know, collapsed after a few months. The Anglo-Irish Agreement was a very important stepping stone, but it had deficiencies that we've talked about earlier. So there was no experience of actually achieving a comprehensive success. Um, so that was, and then the other thing I felt that we, there were, I did have a sense of foreboding that if this broke down, it wouldn't just be back to where we were before the negotiation started, it would be far worse. So there was a strong sense of touch and go, touch and go. And, and then, of course, it's on to the next thing because it pretty much immediately, you know, it was, we were able to celebrate briefly having that. But of course, then it's on to the, um, it's on to the referendum campaigns 
and I had there's an official, you know, briefing for the minister now. On to, it has to go on television and and so on, and uh, the T-shirt and and um, so there was a the sense of it at the time. Then was touch and go, touch and go. Mary has described, you know, the DUP is out there saying no, and so I think it's now it's easier to look back, you know, from 25 years and say, "Phew, that that you know," and and I think, but but at the time it was uh, it was very much. Um, I, I, that that was my sense of it at the time, and then finally, just I would say, looking back at it now, with the, with the with the, I think that the big achievement, and and I say this when I'm asked the question, what's the biggest achievement? The Good Friday Agreement. I think the biggest achievement is we found a way to stop the killing, more or less, not totally, but more or less. And that it turns out, in 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 medical terms, it's like we found a way to stop the bleeding, to stabilize, and and actually, you know, and then that in turn then gives the body the chance to start to heal. I think we, I be honest, uh, we we probably didn't think that that politics was going to take so long. You know, here we are, but actually, there's still. A, I still will say, uh, even though the institutions are down at the moment, I put the hand up and say, no, that that's I. You know, that's that's life. That's politics. Politics are difficult everywhere. You know, but you know, the 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 having finding a way to ending that's in almost endless cycle of violence was was a huge achievement, and I'm hoping that over time. And there was a. I suppose the other thing we achieved, last comment, they, they, we achieved a kind of balance and fairness and equilibrium, more or less, um, you know, in terms of a very difficult, contested situation, that the agreement is kind of grudgingly by some seen as, you know, more or less um, a decent and fair attempt at an accommodation and a compromise. And I think that's, its, that's why it has proven itself so resilient over the 25 years. Quentin. Um, well, I agree. I agree with much of what Tim says. It's it's a mixed picture, isn't it? I I I think looking back, the agreement has been transformative, particularly as Tim says in relation to the terrorist campaign. Um, I guess we always anticipated that uh, an enforced permanent coalition, which is what power sharing requires. Mm-hmm is a big ask in any political system. I'm not sure it could be pulled off in <laughs> Westminster, for example. So that where I think there's a, um, a slight uh, disappointment, although I'm not sure our expectations were that high, we, we used to say part of the re- regular script, as it were, was that if we can form um, together agreed political institutions – then the working of those by the political leaders of the two communities would help to bring the two communities together. Uh, I'm not sure that has quite yet proved to be the case. Agreed. Um, Mm. But, uh, yeah, a mixed picture, but on on the whole, uh, a a good thing. And it seems to be uh, widely respected around the world, which is an unusual thing for us to achieve in these islands. And last word to you, Mary, what does it feel like living in Northern Ireland? Well, in, in one sense, and I don't disagree with anything Quinton or, or Tim have said in relation to what was achieved, but in one sense, the big achievement is that 25 odd years later, we are sitting uh, I, in, a, in a normal society, there's a. I'm not saying it's totally, completely. We don't have eliminated all of the terrorists. We still have shades of that going on, but in a very low, low, low amount, life has been transformed. People listening to this and will have heard my comments at the start will say, "What opening your handbag when you went into the shop to, to a security officer to make sure there was no incendiary devices?" 
going through, you know, sitting in your office and getting showered with glass from bombs that were happening in the streets. That would be so alien to people. Uh, and I can remember when my daughter was doing her postgraduate degree in university on, on marketing and they were asked, how would you market Northern Ireland? And I was, she came back and said, what would you start? And I said, well, we've got Martin McGuinness sitting with Ian Paisley, marvellous. And she said, Mommy, will you stop thinking like that? I'm talking about cinemas and cafes and, you know, tourism and all of this. Her roadmap, when she went to university, was not my roadmap. And that is so so much progress. So it has transformed lives here. I think Quinton is right and Tim is right. We got the prize of stopping the terrorism. We got the prize of taking of, of reasserting politics as a way of solving differences. And we asserted that and we got institutional uh, aspects of, of how we build our relationships and work our relationships in situ. It's been stopped start in many ways, but it's still there. And all the principles that were in the, the, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement still pertain today. What we haven't got is reconciliation because the narratives that both communities have are different as to why we, we were in that dark place 25 years ago. And we haven't got an agreed narrative and that's always going to be difficult. So reconciliation still has to be worked on. Peace has to be continually worked on. And that's what politics and that's what the politicians are in business to do. Okay, well, that's a brilliant challenge to the politicians and for the next 25 years. Um, but could I thank all the participants, um, credit to all the officials everywhere and many we haven't named who worked to get us to that uh, weekend on Good Friday 25 years ago. Credit too to the politicians who showed such political courage to get us there as well. So that's the end of this Inside Briefing Extra. Do check out our regular podcast and uh, and all our other podcasts that you've uh, you've heard and events. So uh, that's that. And happy Easter, happy Good Friday from the Institute for Government. Thank you very much. <laughs>